Welcome to the Small Hours Podcast. My name's Al Gavada. Thank you very much for joining us. We're going to be kicking off episode number six of the Small Hours Podcast. Got a lot of things to talk about, so let's kick it off with some movie news from BoxOfficeMojo.com. The talk of The Martian breaking Gravity's October opening weekend record began early and really spiked after the Ridley Scott film posted a better opening day than the 2013 Alfonso Cuaron sci-fi flick. However, The Martian came up a shade shy of the $55.7 million needed to beat the record. With an A cinema score, however, this one should survive well week to week. 20th Century Fox is reporting a $54.3 million opening weekend for The Martian, which puts it short of the October opening record, but enough for second place on the chart. By comparison, Gravity had an A- back in 2013, and it went on to enjoy weekends with drops no larger than 36.3% over its first seven weekends. We'll see how The Martian plays out. As a matter of fact, over the course of its entire 31-week run, Gravity only dropped more than 50% three times. It's pretty impressive. Being a major Oscar contender and 3D event film will do that. For Martian star Matt Damon, this was his second largest opening behind uh, The Bourne Ultimatum, which opened at $69.2 million and ahead of The Bourne Supremacy, which opened at 52.5. Save for Scott, whose largest opening weekend ever belongs to Hannibal with $58 million back in 2001. However, The Martian finishes ahead of his 2012 sci-fi feature Prometheus, which brought in $51 million in its opening weekend. Adding over 2,500 additional theaters this weekend, Sicario brought in $12 million. It looks as if the audience supporting the impressive run so far also liked the film, giving it an A- in them score. This could mean long legs and perhaps some well-deserved Oscar nominations in various categories. In its second weekend, Sony's Hotel Transylvania 2 scored an easy second place, bringing in $33 million as it continues to outperform its predecessor. Now it's up to about $90.5 million overall. Nearly $14 million more than where the first Hotel Transylvania was at this point two years ago. Dipping quite a bit was Eli Roth's The Green Inferno falling 63%, earning only $1.2 million in its second weekend. It's so far earned about $6 million. It's not too bad, though it was made on $5 million budget, spent about another $7 million marketing, so it's going to need a little bit more juice before it can break even. However, it's used to looking at home video and television deals, so this one should be in the clear. Also in the top 10 was The Intern, still doing pretty good in at number 4 with $11.6 million. The Maze Run to the Scorch Trials in at number 5 with $7.8. Black Mass at number 6 with $5.8. $5.6 for Everest at number 7. The Visit still in the top 8 with $3.9. War Room with $2.8 at number 9. And The Perfect Guy at $2.4. In limited release, you have The Walk with $1.5 million. And that's one of the movies we're going to be talking about in movies opening or opening bigger this weekend. First one we're going to be chatting about is Pan. It's a rated PG about the 12-year-old orphan, Peter, taken away to the magical world of Neverland, where he finds both fun and dangers and ultimately discovers his destiny to become the hero who will forever be known as Peter Pan. It's directed by Joe Wright, starring Levi Miller, Hugh Jackman, Rooney Mara, and more. And while Wright has created an incredible-looking take on Neverland, the question is, do people really want to see the origin story about Peter Pan? Hugh Jackman does a, has a great performance as uh, Hook, and that should make the movie worth viewing, but Pan could be the first box office disappointment of the fall season. Now, uh, like I mentioned before, on The Walk, which just came in at number 11 this past weekend, it is opening nationwide now. It has a 70 out of 100 score with 41 reviews. For a moment, it seemed as though Everest was set to overshadow The Walk, but it didn't hold on to their audience in wide release. So there is room at the top of the box office this coming weekend, especially if parents and kids aren't really feeling pan, like I mentioned before. They may go check out this movie just for the special effects, etc. 
going to have to keep an eye on that one. Also, opening up in limited release with great reviews so far, 8 out of 10, not too bad, Steve Jobs. It's set backstage at three iconic product launches and ends in 1998 with the unveiling of the iMac. Steve Jobs takes us behind the scenes of the digital revolution to paint a portrait of the man at its epicenter. It's directed by Danny Boyle, starring Michael Fassbender, who admittedly says, I don't look anything like Steve Jobs, and that's not what they were looking for. They were looking more uh, more for the essence of Steve Jobs, and from what I understand, he did it well. Also starring Kate Winslet, Seth Rogen, and Jeff Daniels. The buzz about this one is a collaboration between Danny Boyle, Aaron Sorkin, and Michael Fassbender. It's worthy of all the advanced attention that Steve Jobs has received. So if you're in New York or in L.A., check it out. It's opening up this weekend. A bunch of news came out recently, including good news for Scott Lang fans. Marvel Studios' smallest hero will ride again with Ant-Man and the Wasp, a sequel to the Paul Rudd vehicle announced for a July 6, 2018 release. This news means that the previously locked Phase 3 schedule will shift for a second time. The first time was when Sony's Spider-Man deal with Marvel was announced. With Black Panther moving from a July 6, 2018 to a February 16, 2018 release and Captain Marvel being pushed out from November 2nd of 2018 to March 8th of 2019. The studio also scheduled three untitled movies for 2020. Disney also announced a release date for 19 movies through the year 2020, including the summer 2017 opening for Pixar's Cars 3 and a 2019 bow of The Incredibles 2. Also on the plate are movies like Coco, Gigantic, Toy Story 4, which is going to be moving to 2018 as opposed to 2017 as was originally announced. That's going to be in June 15th. An untitled Disney fairy tale. Actually, two of them, one in uh, 2018 and one in 2019. An untitled Disney Toon Studios for 2019. And another untitled Disney fairy tale live action, now dated for 2019, as well as a third Pixar animation movie for March of 2020. And hey, Hasbro announced that there's going to be more sequels to the Transformers. Four of them. Moving on. Movie news on uh, eOnline.com. Tell us how you really feel, Daniel Craig. The always candid, sometimes gruff actor tells Time Out London that he can't imagine doing another James Bond movie after Spectre. Now, that's going to be coming out on November 6th. This is an actual quote from Daniel Craig. I'd rather break this glass and slash my wrists, he said about playing the British spy again. Says, I'm over it at the moment. We're done. All I want to do is move on. They uh, asked him if he wants to move on from the role uh, once and for all. He says, for at least a year or two, I just don't want to think about it. I don't know what the next step is. I have no idea, basically, what he's going to do next. Now, while you have actors like Robert Downey Jr. doing Iron Man and Hugh Jackman doing Wolverine for years and years and years, Craig says he's ready to do something new. He's like, if I did another Bond movie, it would only be for the money. Now, he was also asked, does he care who replaces him? He says, look, I don't give an F. Good luck to them. Make it better. That's all. As someone who starred in four James Bond films, starting with 2006's Casino Royale, which is excellent, what would he tell someone in the running to be a successor? Don't be crap. You've got to step up. People do not make movies like this anymore. This is really rare now, so don't be crap. It's worth it. It's James Bond. So there you go. If you're planning to try out for James Bond and take over for Daniel Craig, that's his advice to you. From HitFix.com, George Miller struck a pretty tremendous blow against the idea of ageism with his vibrant, dynamic work on Mad Max Fury Road. And since that film came out, his name's been bouncing around with several different possible projects rumored as his next priority. He's already said several times that the rumor about him directing Man of Steel 2 is simply untrue, but he has yet to offer up the title of what he's doing instead. He was talking to Top Gear. He gave a pretty clear picture of what's on his mind right now. He says, I want to do a small film without special effects. Just do it quickly. 
He said, and it's easy to imagine why you'd want that. Fury Road was a monumental shoot. When you look at the final film, it's pretty clear why it took so long. That kind of remarkable precision-based mayhem is demanding, and Miller's the kind of guy who has to do it right or not at all. He said, we shot Fury Road for eight months. That's a lot. Every day in the heat and dust and doing this stunts, it's very wearing. So while he wants to make something smaller first, it sounds like Miller's still serious about returning to the world of Mad Max, and not just once. We've been hearing for some time now that there was more material developed for Max than they used, and there was some talk that there was a Furiosa spinoff film just waiting for a green light with a finished script and a ton of art already developed, so we'll see what happens. Now, Fury Road made it clear that Miller's sharper than ever, which means the most exciting and kinetic action filmmaker alive is a soft-spoken man in his 70s. That's right. 70s. No word yet on what kind of timetable they're looking at, but I'm willing to wait if that means we get another film even as great as Fury Road. So, George, stay healthy. We want you around for a lot longer, especially if you're doing output like Fury Road. Fantastic. News from the rap.com. Jake Gyllenhaal, Paul Dano, Kelly McDonald, and Bill Nye are poised to join Tilda Swinton in a movie called Okia, a multilingual monster movie from the director of Snowpiercer, which is a great movie. His name, Bong Joon-ho. Details surrounding the project remain vague, but it's said to feature a Korean female lead and a host of English language supporting actors whose scenes will be set in New York. Lewis Pictures is producing Okia, which is expected to start production early next year. Now, Tilda Swinton has already confirmed her involvement in the project, while the other actors are in various stages of discussions. The South Korean filmmaker's previous movies include the serial killer procedural Memories of Murder and the critically acclaimed monster movie The Host. Gyllenhaal is coming off an impressive run, including Nightcrawler, which is a great movie, Prisoners, I really enjoyed, which was also with uh, Hugh Jackman, and also Southpaw, plus the upcoming Fox Searchlight release Demolition. He can currently be seen in Everest and will soon begin filming Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals. He's also attached to star in the Boston Marathon bombing movie Stronger and Antoine Fuqua's drug drama the man who made it snow. Dano, who received special thanks credit on Snowpiercer, will soon be seen in Pablo Sorrento's Youth and the miniseries War and Peace. He recently delivered an awards-worthy performance as a young Brian Wilson in Love and Mercy. Now, some of the other actors. Hello, Bill Nye, Victor from Underworld, Davy Jones from the Pirates of the Caribbean's Dead Man's Chest, and of course, Rattlesnake Jake from Rango. And Tilda Swinton, who you might remember not only from Snowpiercer, but also the White Witch from Narnia, which I, I think she did a great job. And she's also going to be coming out in Doctor Strange. From Variety.com, Seth Graham Smith is in talks to direct the movie adaptation of The Flash for Warner Brothers. Charles Roven is producing the film based on the studio's DC Entertainment property about the crime-fighting superhero who can move at superhuman speeds. Zack Snyder and wife Deborah Snyder are executive producing. The character, created by writer Gardner Fox and artist Harry Lampert, first appeared in Flash Comics No. 1 in 1940. Now, The Flash would mark Graham Smith's featured directorial debut, and he would helm from his own script. Graham Smith is the author of Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, and of course, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and the writer of the adapted screenplays for those movies along with being the screenwriter for Warner Brothers' upcoming Lego Batman. The Flash, starring Ezra Miller, will hit theaters in March 3rd, all the way in 2018. The character will be introduced in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice in March, and appear in Justice League Part 1 in 2017, before getting his own uh, individual film. The news about Graham Smith was first reported by The Hollywood Reporter. I don't know if you caught this story, but I got the news from SlashGear.com to share with you. Paramount Pictures put more than 100 films up on YouTube and made them available absolutely free. The channel's called The Paramount Vault, and it gives free access to dozens of content of the uh, world's largest video streaming service. Now, Paramount isn't offering its latest and greatest films, so don't expect to see things like Iron Man or World War Z. In fact, despite the over 100 films there, the full list excludes any blockbusters, new or old, like Titanic or Raiders of the 
Lost Ark. The set does include a wide range of films from black and white classics to science fiction to westerns. You can see uh, films like 50s Dark City starring Charlton Heston, even Dolph Lundgren doing He-Man in Masters of the Universe. The Paramount Vault's YouTube account is described as a place for showcasing a varied selection of the studio's work. Rather than the best of the best, it's meant more to give viewers a sense of history of the world of cinematography, both the ups and even the downs. The account is an official Paramount account and has been verified by YouTube and the films are viewable, however, only in the U.S. No word yet if Paramount plans on expanding that coverage. And again, some more creative people will always find a way around restrictions like that. Getting some music news from MetalInjection.net. After much teasing and a bit of delays, Iron Maiden finally announced the dates for the U.S. portion of their Book of Souls tour. It starts in February 24th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the 26th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in Vegas on the 28th, then all the way till March. That's their next date in New York, New York. Uh, April 5th, Detroit, Michigan. 6th, Chicago, Illinois. April 11th, Tacoma, Washington. April 13th, Denver, Colorado. And on the 15th in Los Angeles, California. Hang on, that's it? Nine dates? That's all we get? All right. Well, the opening band on the tour will be the Raven Age, which features Maiden bassist Steve Harris' son, George Harris. So there you go. Be on the lookout for some Iron Maiden dates if you're in nine cities in the U.S. Nothing in Texas. From Blabbermouth.net, according to the Beijinger, Megadeth's October 6th concert at the MasterCard Center in Beijing, China, ended abruptly after only an hour, possibly due to the band being censored by officials. There were an unusual number of instrumentals and extended guitar solos filling out their abbreviated performance, with Skin of My Teeth being played instrumentally, and several others of the band's best-known songs, including Holy Wars and Angry Again, completely omitted from the set. According to the Wall Street Journal, authorities in China require entertainment companies to jump through hoops, submitting minute details of their show, including set lists. The process reflects the control held by China's censors, who try to prevent incidents like the one in 2008, in which Bjork sang at a Shanghai concert about the ever-politically sensitive issue of Tibetan freedom. The members of Metallica revealed in 2013 that they were asked to send lyrics to their entire discography to the Chinese government for approval before they were given permission to play in the country. Now, Megadeth's current touring lineup features founding members Dave Mustaine and Dave Elfson alongside Lamb of God drummer Chris Adler and Brazilian guitarist Kiko Luredo, uh, best known for his work in Angra. Replacing Adler at the Beijing concert was veteran drummer Tony Lariano, formerly of Dimu Borger and Angel Corpse, who also works as Megadeth's drum tech. Megadeth's 15th studio album, Dystopia, will be released on January 22nd of next year. The follow-up to 2013 Super Collider was recorded earlier in the year in Nashville, Tennessee, and was mixed by Josh Wilbur, known for uh, previously working with Lamb of God, All That Remains, and Godzilla. Another story from uh, blabbermouth.net, and I don't know if you caught this one. During a recent appearance on Eddie Trunk's show, Twisted Sisters Dee Snyder criticized Paul Stanley and KISS bassist Gene Simmons for having current KISS members Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer dress up as Peter Chris's and Ace Frehley's respective Catman and Spaceman personas. Dee told Trunk, I don't see how people could accept this. Tommy Thayer? I'm sorry, it's insulting. Not only did he play in a tribute band of KISS, he's imitating Ace in his entire act. Snyder went on to bash Thayer for allegedly copying Ace's stage moves and he said oh my god that's disgraceful when Kiss replaced Ace and Peter and they brought in Eric Carr and Vinnie Vincent who had their own makeup and their own thing that was acceptable that was awesome they were their own characters now in return Paul Stanley got an opportunity to respond during an interview for Chris Jericho's Talk is Jericho podcast he said well let me put it in the simplest terms in this case this guy's a wannabe he's always been a wannabe and desperately wants attention and to be taken seriously 
seriously, and that will never happen because he's obviously clueless that he and his whole band are a bunch of buffoons. This is Paul Stanley talking about Twisted Sister. Dee Snyder responded to those comments by writing an open letter to the Kiss frontman in which he accused Paul of being, quote, oddly threatened by him and insisting that he would bury Stanley in a hypothetical old-school rock battle featuring no costumes, no pyro, and no BS. At the 2015 Long Island Benefit to Fight Hunger on September 20th, Snyder spoke to The Real Radio Show about his war of words with Stanley and addressed Stanley directly, saying, Paul, I love your band, I love your music, why do you have to be such a dick? Alice Cooper's not a dick, Alice Cooper has inspired a million people, and he's the coolest guy in the world. Yet Gene and Paul, they've got this arrogance about them like the world owes them something. We do owe you something, but let us offer it. Don't insist we buy it from you. So there you go. Still going on between Dee Snyder and Paul Stanley, both basically rock legends. In my opinion, Paul Stanley, one of the greatest frontmen of all time. But when it comes to arrogance, yeah, I can see what Dee's saying. <laughs> and last but not least, a story from NPR.org. It's a relatively controversy-free list of potential inductees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Although diehards always find a reason for outrage at inclusions or omissions. Sorry again, fans of Bon Jovi and The Cure. This year, nods go to eight first-time nominees, including The Cars, Chicago, and Los Lobos. Cheap Trick and Steve Miller are also under consideration for the first time. Meanwhile, disco funk band Chic scores a tenth nod. Not yet inducted. Solo performers on the list include funk legend Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan, and uh, Janet Jackson. The 2016 list seems to pay heed in some manner to the cry of fans over the exclusion of vintage bands from what many see as the golden age of rock and roll. The groundbreaking prog rock band Yes, for example, has been eligible for enshrinement since 1994, and it's only the first year they get their nomination. They only have one nomination on their resume. Uh, yes makes this year's cut, as does Deep Purple, which formed back in 1968. When I cast my votes, the top five were as follows. At number five was Steve Miller with uh, over 360,000 votes. Deep Purple at number four with a little bit more than that. The Cars at number three with 367,000 votes. Yes in at number two with 371,000 votes. And Chicago with over 383,000 votes. Now, this is just the fan vote. There's no guarantee that that's going to be the final top five and who will make it into the Hall of Fame. There were other bands nominated this year, including The Spinners, NWA, Nine Inch Nails, The Smiths, and The JBs. Metal ahead. Please exit now to avoid getting caught in the awesome. There you go. There's your off-ramp. If you came for entertainment news, your segment has ended. However, if you want to continue and listen to a uh, featured track of the week, stick around because we have a great one. British metal band Absolva have revealed No One Escapes as the first video and song from their forthcoming Never A Good Day To Die album set for release coming up on October 12th. That's this coming Monday. The video includes live footage taken during the band's European tour, earlier this year, plus footage from the recent studio sessions for the recording of the new album. You can find it on YouTube for yourself. As a matter of fact, the song is also available for free download on soundcloud.com slash rocksector slash absolva dash no dash one dash escapes. So do a search for absolva on soundcloud.com and check it out for yourself. Now, fans who got to see them on tour will recognize the aggressive, muscular groove of No One Escapes when the song became a regular on the band's set list. Now, Never a Good Day to Die, the album, was co-written by frontman Chris Appleton and his brother Luke, who also is part of Iced Earth, and it's available for pre-order now at www.absolva.com. They also revealed the full track listing for the new album, going like this, Disguise, Killer Within, No One Escapes, The Light, 
Never a Good Day to Die, How Black Is My Heart, Transform, No Tomorrow, Warrior Soldier, Orphan of God, and All Alone. Check it out for yourself. I tell you what, man, if you didn't get a chance to check them out on tour because you weren't in Europe like I wasn't either, now you get to check them out for yourself right here, right now as a featured track of the week. Off of the Never a Good Day to Die upcoming album that's going to be released this Monday, this is Absolva with No One Escapes, the featured track of the week on the Small Hours Podcast with Al Gavada. Let him have it, guys. Hi, guys. This is Chris Appleton from Absolva. Hi, this is Luke Appleton of Absolva and Iced Earth. Check out our new track, No One Escapes, the first single off our new album, Never a Good Day to Die. This week's featured track on the Small Hours Podcast with Al Gavada. And remember, guys... Absolver.
go. No one escapes. That is Absolva. Brand new track. Album coming out on Monday. Check them out at Absolva.com. That's A-B-S-O-L-V-A.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Small Hours Podcast. I sure did. And remember, we are available at thesmallhours.podbean.com at any time. Plus, recently just announced, we are now on iTunes. So if you have an iTunes account, do a search for the Small Hours with Al Gavada and subscribe. If you are a band that would like to be considered to be featured on the Small Hours Podcast with Al Gavada, send us an email. Smallhoursemail at gmail.com. That's smallhoursemail at gmail.com. We're going to be featuring uh, more tracks as the episodes continue, and we want you to be a part of it. Again, we'll catch you next week right here with more entertainment news and another featured track of the week. This has been the Small Hours Podcast with Al Gavada. I'm Al Gavada. We'll catch you next time.